Hello, and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Carly Guyman. And I'm Shailen Back. We're your co-hosts. 2020 has been such an exciting year as we've been commemorating achievements made in women's suffrage. And today we get to talk about one of the most prominent women's rights advocates for Latter-day Saint women and women in general in the late 1800s, Emmeline B. Wells. So to connect Emmeline's life and contribution to us as women in the church today, we have Cherry Silver and Cherie Maxwell-Bench in the studio with us today. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So to introduce our guests, we are so lucky to have them. They both have spent so much time in the area of women's history and also specifically on Emmeline Wells. So we're excited to ask you questions and, and just get to learn more about her from you. So to introduce first Cherry, Cherry Bushman Silver holds a PhD in English literature from Harvard University and taught literature and composition as a visiting professor at Brigham Young University. And she was also a researcher with the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Latter-day Saint History. So welcome, Cherry. Thank you. <laughs> and Cherie, Cherie Maxwell-Bench holds bachelor's and master's degrees from Brigham Young University and teaches writing at Utah Valley University, as well as courses in global women's studies and Latter-day Saint women's history at BYU. We want to take some of those classes. Yes. <laughs> that would be really great. <laughs> And she previously worked also as a researcher with the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute at BYU. And you'd mentioned you were associated before that as well, but you had worked together there at the Institute. Well, we will jump right in. So as Shailen mentioned, today we're talking all about Emmeline B. Wells. And as we were talking as a group before the recording, you know, Emmeline is one of those names. We, we don't know a lot of women from our history, you know, or we don't talk about a lot of women from our history, but she mm -hmm. is one that we hear her name and we might know a couple mm -hmm. things about her, but we really don't know. I think the average member does not know much about Emmeline and her life is fascinating. And she experienced some really challenging things, difficult things mm -hmm. very early in life. So we would love for one of you to jump in and just give us a brief introduction to Emmeline and just kind of some highlights, some nuggets that people should know about her or that we should make sure that we remember about her. I think you'll want to visualize that she was a young girl in a small village in the center of Massachusetts, but she had imagination. She was sprightly and had a great memory. Her mother and her family saw that she had possibilities and made it possible for her to get a good education. But she might have stayed and never come to our attention, except that her mother began to talk with the Latter-day Saint missionaries and brought her daughter home from boarding school to listen to Elder McGinn. Members of the community said, do not join that church. <laughs> you have this promising career as a poet and a teacher. Don't go with that group. She was torn, but at age 14, March 1st, a date she always remembered. She stood at the banks of the creek near her home and agreed to be baptized. As she got out of the water, people shook their heads and said, oh, you've sacrificed so much. Mm -hmm. Looking back on that later, she said, I knew I was a child of destiny. And she responded to opportunities that came along all through her life, that being probably the first one. Mm -hmm. She said her mom was a woman's rights woman. So I don't think she gives a lot of detail about what that looked like, mm -hmm. 
but certainly her mother was influential in encouraging her to mm-hmm. to take these um, paths. And mm-hmm. she did. She, she did. Really she did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Right. But No, she finished school at age 15 and began to teach in a one-room school in a nearby village. When she had completed that term, her mother had another idea. She wanted her daughter to join the Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo, where they were then. She couldn't sell her house and arrange to go herself. Her mom was a widow at this point. She was a widow who had remarried, and it was not a good situation. She was really still on her own, but it had one dear little boy from this second marriage. However, the mother, Diadama, arranged for Emmeline to be courted by the 15-year-old son of the branch president because they were going to Nauvoo. And she was married in July of that year. At age 15. Still, uh, yes, still at 15. A year later, when she was 16 in April, then they left for Nauvoo in that. Okay. That's the first line, the first journal that we have. When she got to Nauvoo, she met Joseph Smith. And that led to a testimony she wanted to bear all through her life. She may have elaborated a little bit, but it, certainly she felt when he shook her hand, she knew he was a prophet. And she went to hear him every time he could speak. However, her group arrived in May of 1844. Joseph and Hiram were martyred in June oh, wow. of 1844. So the overlap time was not large. It was very brief. Mm-hmm. It's no. amazing that she got to meet him. But it was a hard time in Nauvoo. And the parents of her husband, James Harris, became dissatisfied with the church and all the conflict. That strange transition period. It was, mm-hmm. it was hard for them. They decided to leave, move away. She was expecting a baby, and she and James said, we will stay. We want to stay with the saints. The baby was born the 1st of September. She had the fever, those morass fevers that were striking people down, probably malaria. The baby acquired difficulty, too, and died at six weeks. It's devastating. Yeah. They were on their own needed employment. He was trying to start a little business. James went to St. Louis to make contacts, perhaps to get work, and said to Emmeline, I will write and send for you. But he never did. And he sent a couple of letters back saying, maybe you should go with my parents. But he actually signed on as a merchant seaman, went down to New Orleans, and shipped for the Far East. Oh, wow. She never saw him again, but she didn't know where he was or what was coming back. And she was so young. Mm. I can't imagine yes. dealing with these things at the age of 16, at having 16. a death of a child. Hard time yes. for her personally. His family gone, her family not there. She had some blessings. Brigham Young came to give her a blessing of health. She had a patriarchal blessing from John Smith. And she had a woman on their trip to Nauvoo who said, come and live with me. Her name was Olive Bishop. And I'll help you get started in a little school, because she was a school teacher. Mm -hmm. Among her students were the younger children of Newell Kay and Ann Whitney. And that's how she became acquainted with the Whitney family. When she looked at her patriarchal blessing, it promised her some wonderful things. She would be able to redeem her family. She would be connected with someone with priesthood keys. She would have the blessings of the restored gospel. 
she went to Bishop Whitney and said, can you explain yeah, what this to this me? what does this mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was an opener, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so she became part of the family. She became a plural wife of Newell K. Whitney. Although it seems like she didn't quite understand exactly what that ceiling entailed. Um, when you said was still sort of hoping that yeah, her, she was still her husband would come for back. James. You know, she has these entries where she's talking about how she sees someone off in the distance and she thinks maybe it's him, but no, no, it's not. And she's so disappointed. And so she just she thinks he's gonna come back, but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point she starts writing a diary. We have 47 of the diaries she wrote over her lifetime. But she says, is there any future for me? She's going to live until she's 93. And in the blessing that Brigham Young gave her, he said she would have a long life and that she would do good throughout her life. And that was the destiny, really, the Lord must have had in mind for her. Because as she entered the household of Newell and Ann Whitney, she was nurtured then by people who loved and understood the gospel. And for the rest of her life, she associated with the leaders and fine teachers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it seems like even though her early Mm -hmm. life, she had so many difficulties, it really did Mm -hmm. set her up in a lot of ways for, you know, she probably had a lot of hope for the future. And I just think of her coming to Salt Lake from Nauvoo to Salt Lake again at such a young age when she's already encountered so many things. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? The thing about the trail is, you know, we don't always think about the reality of what that experience was like. And I think Emmeline gives us a good sense of it, although it's coming from a 16-year-old perspective. So in many ways, it often sounds like an adventure instead of <laughs> the ordeal that it that it was it's traveling. super monotonous, right? Just well, this yeah, trudging. And, yes. I mean, yeah. she does talk about the rain that they're encountering and the mud is so mm-hmm. bad and the horses have to work so hard and, and the oxen to, to get through the mud. And so they need to stop and let them rest and that sort of thing. But, you know, then she talks about how She's picking wildflowers and how beautiful the scenery is. She talks about a fire that was on the prairie and they weren't sure if they were gonna be able to get through it and they were able to get it out and there was ash left and so they had to cross through this ash and the ash, she says, black and white ashes flew in our faces as we crossed about a mile. Can you think a mile's worth of ash blowing on your face? She talks about when letters come from Nauvoo and how exciting it is when when they get word from family who are still behind. And she has this one note about some people who received letters from home, from Nauvoo, and she says, they're bringing word from Nauvoo of all manner of wickedness, dancing schools, grog shops, and billiard tables, and everyone supporting himself (laughs) at the expense of his neighbor. And I think that's really telling to show in her mind what constitutes kind of like the fall of Nauvoo, Mm -hmm. right? That dancing schools and billiards, (laughs) right? But then I really am intrigued by that last statement, everyone supporting himself at the expense of his neighbor, where it makes it sound like it was so much more of a community, that there was a real collegiality among the citizens of Nauvoo, where they were looking out for one another, Mm -hmm. and now... That seems to have selfishness. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. that they've become selfish. So another thing that I really picked up on when I was going through these diaries recently is the camp itself. 
And it's something I just really hadn't thought about. She's talking about how her particular wagon has been a little bit behind, and so then they're coming up to the camp, and so many of the tents, she says, all huddled together. And the horses and wagons are interspersed. And then she describes what she hears. Some are singing and laughing, some are praying, children crying, etc. Every sound may be heard from one tent to another. And that was just a sensory detail I really hadn't considered of the trail experience that how noisy it might be mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're Rowdy intense. And, yeah. and, and so you hear conversations, maybe some arguments, yeah. you know, yeah. children crying. So those are just some interesting details that caught my eye. It's so fun talking to the two of you because what is amazing is that the insights you have are coming straight from Emmeline Wells and her diaries. Mm -hmm. So she is saying her thoughts, she's saying her perspectives, and I feel like probably some of the language you're using are her words. And so Mm -hmm. it's a really beautiful thing to be able to do this. It's really exciting to note that these diaries are made available to the public on churchhistorianspress.org, and we'll link to that for our listeners. It was really neat to go through. There's lots of supplementary resources and images. There's lots of additional information about the different people she was associated with Mm -hmm. here in Utah and then nationally as well. And it's a project that reflects the work that you two have been doing for 18 years. So it's really neat to be able to have this discussion (laughs) with you today. And so now that we've kind of learned a little bit about her early years and coming to Utah, what happens in her life next that dictates her decisions and her path for the rest of her life. You might want to visualize the trail in two parts. Her diary covers the Iowa section, right out of Nauvoo. But the Whitney spent a year in winter quarters. It was in 1848 when she came on the longer trek from winter quarters to Salt Lake City, and she was pregnant. Oh, wow. She arrives in Salt Lake, and two months later gives birth to oh, her first my daughter. Goodness. <laughs> Sounds terrible. In a wagon. <laughs> in a wagon, in oh, November, when it's cold, and the baby's not coming easily. You want to read those stories, but we don't have a diary from that year. However, she reflects later. Okay. And she'll think Same. back to the people and her mm-hmm. feelings particularly on the birthday. A busy year. Didn't have a lot of time to write in her diary (laughs) that year. (laughs) She has another child born in 1850, a second daughter. However, Newell K. Whitney dies suddenly in Salt Lake, and she is there giving birth by herself and having to take care of these two children. She goes back to set up a school. Again, her friend Olive Bishop provides her some housing and takes her in. But after two years of that, A young widow with two children, she thinks, I'm still young, just 22. I don't want to spend my life alone like Mm -hmm. this. So she composes a letter, what we call a letter of subtle proposal, (laughs) to Daniel H. Wells, a noted citizen and a friend of Newell K. Whitney she admires, probably because he's kind and well-spoken, very capable leader in the church, and suggests that maybe he would add her to his family. He waits a while to answer, a month, and he waits a few months more before he does. But then he takes her on and agrees that he will provide housing for her. And they have three daughters together over the next nine years. But he has five other plural wives. So this is a... A large family. Right. And she has to share his time and his focus and interest. But it gives her some stability and fulfills a promise that Newell K. Whitney made to her that she would spend her life reading and writing and associating with the elite of the world 
and teaching them about the gospel. Again, a child of destiny. Mm -hmm. As she went back to visit Nauvoo for the first time, some 40 years later, she said, I was left to my fate, and although I felt no special guidance, yet the hand of providence was over me and must have guided me to the safe haven I have found. This will be in the diaries coming out in December. Oh, a preview. Wonderful. (laughs) I think something interesting, too, is throughout this time, Emmeline is very involved in the Relief Society. And you have both shared that that gave her some confidence and some experience that really wasn't readily available to women at that time to speak and to write and to teach and lead. And then that gives her the opportunities and experience she needs to then become a leader in the suffrage movement. So maybe we could talk about her involvement in the Relief Society. Yeah, she starts out in her local Relief Society in the 13th Ward as an assistant secretary and then just as even now, yes, <laughs> steadily you start, promoted, exactly, whether you want it exactly or not. Right. But, you know, people see that you have an ability and that you're reliable and they know they can count on you to fulfill your role. And so, yeah, then she gets tapped for other things. 1876, Brigham Young says, Emmeline, we need you to lead the grain storage movement. He had previously asked the men to do it and not much had happened there. So he... <laughs> Trusted Emmeline Went to, to a woman that yeah, he to, thought would get it done, probably. <laughs> and she was a great organizer and was able to motivate the women. And they were able to amass quite a sizable amount of grain over the years. It was a project that she oversaw for like 40 years. Until 1916. Yeah. Oh, wow. 1918. Hmm. Until, you know, ultimately hmm. the grain was sold to the U.S. government during World War One, But... That was an opportunity for her to step into a leadership role. Mm -hmm. And then right around the same time, 1877, she had started writing some editorial-type pieces for The Woman's Exponent that had been started in 1872. A newspaper. A newspaper, yes. 19th century newspaper. And as was common, Emmeline chose a pseudonym of Blanche Beechwood, (laughs) to write these editorials, and they were really fiery, some of them, you know, challenging women's roles. And you both have said very progressive for that time. She was progressive. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, she fit right in with other 19th century suffragists. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here she is, clear out in the West, Mm -hmm. but examining the same kinds of issues, Mm -hmm. wondering about the place of woman. Mm -hmm. You know, the woman question is what they called it. You may be interested in seeing her, too, as a promoter of young people and their talents. By the time she starts writing diaries that we have, it's 1874. Women's suffrage has already come to Utah. Women have the vote. But in her home in January of that year is founded the Wasatch Literary Association. Her daughter, M, E-M for Emma, was uh, part of a group of bright young people that included Heber J. Grant and Orson F. Whitney. Oh, wow. And people who became <laughs> newspaper editors. Leaders. And, and leaders yes, in the church the later, Rudger Hawson. And these young people came to her house and organized a predecessor of the Young Men, Young Women's Organization, as we, okay. as we know it. Mm-hmm. Right? And they liked to challenge each other, to write, to be creative. They were funny. They did music. 
They she was sort of facilitating this. She right. was. And she had this nice house that Daniel had built her with a parlor, and there she gathered in the youth of the church and followed their careers throughout. throughout. And I think she was a perfect person to do that because those things were important to her. She really wanted people to develop their intellect. It was intellect. natural for her to yeah. promote those things. And the arts. You know, she wanted to be a writer herself. She saw herself as a poet. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that she doesn't have fame for her poetry, but she has fame for her journalism, for her petitions that she mm -hmm. had to craft, and for memorials that she wrote to advocate for political causes. You know, so she did become a writer, just not the way she quite she envisioned. Maybe anticipated. Yeah. Okay. And it's so interesting to hear everything else she was involved in, too, and leading so many just different community organizations and different initiatives and helping other people to kind of find themselves and be successful. Yeah. When you she became connected with the Women's Exponent, then she had an office. And that meant that visitors to town would come to see her or would be sent there by the brethren who would say, you should go visit Anne M. M. right. Mm -hmm. She remembers everything. She knows everyone. She can tell you the scoop. Oh, interesting. And she would have a downtown office, and so people came. As a result, she'd throw up her hands and say, I never get anything done because all these people are coming to see me. But she loved it. She really loved it. She enjoyed that. And at one point, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony actually came, and they came to visit her. They came at least twice. They came right after Utah women had the vote 1871. in 1871. And then as they approached statehood in 1895, and Utah women were going to get the vote again, uh, again put <laughs> mm -hmm. into the Constitution, Mrs. Katie Stanton at that time, she had retired, but Susan B. Anthony came and mm -hmm. Anna Howard Shaw, this wonderful orator, and they held meetings in mm -hmm. Salt Lake and praised her and would pat her on the back. And at that time, Emmeline had her own little house again, and she invited them to come visit and see her and said, this was a highlight day of my life. Oh, that's sweet. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that. I mean, it's amazing because when I think of early Utah saints and kind of frontier Utah, I don't often think about this incredible connection that they had with the national leaders and these very prominent activists and especially female activists. Mm -hmm. This is such an incredible connection that we can make. We have to move our minds beyond the frontier village. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Not, and they had nice houses. They had streetcars. Mm -hmm. They had problems. And they were educated. <laughs> and it's really neat to hear this perspective because then we really can connect with them and see, oh, yeah, they did have mm -hmm. the same problems. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were working yeah. through mm -hmm. um, so many things that we can relate to so but, easily. But she wanted culture. Mm -hmm. I yeah. believe in women, Blanche Breedwood wrote, especially thinking women. And when she came back from national meetings in Washington, and the women around her seemed lackadaisical. She said, I've got to inspire them to think more clearly. They've got to follow these political issues. We may have the vote, but it won't mean anything unless we're using it. Mm -hmm. Well, and we were also talking earlier just how she really had the ability to see beyond their own sphere and their own kind of small, maybe small frontier world that you've described isn't really as small as we think it is, but reaching out, like we've talked about reaching out to women and others outside the sphere to travel to Washington, D.C. and to be involved in these movements and to build bridges 
to create relationships that would serve their community. And I think that that may have started with her exchange of newspapers with other suffrage newspapers, other women's Mm -hmm. groups. Mm -hmm. And she was keeping tabs on what was happening nationally and internationally and reporting that in the woman's exponent. And so that's why she was such a source of information, both at the local level and then, you know, national and international. She was writing biographies of leading women in the nation and internationally uh, that she would publish in the exponent as well. So she was really trying to make women aware of women's activities at all levels, including Relief Society too. You know, it, it did function as the kind of unofficial organ of the Relief Society as well, but it had a much broader purpose. In the diaries that we have, she says, I spoke in front of men for the first time in a public meeting. Mm -hmm. I think this was on the Saturday meeting in the 14th Ward building of the Retrenchment Association. But she marked that down because that was a step forward to that. That's a big deal. It was. Women were not speaking to men Absolutely not. That was promiscuous. Mm -hmm. It was very frowned upon. And so you have... Elizabeth Cady Stanton back in Seneca Falls in 1848, having this convention, and there were a few men there. I mean, that was revolutionary. Hmm. You know, to ask for the vote was revolutionary. That was just unheard of, and it violated all the social norms, all of the expectations of women. Women were not to be in public life. That wasn't their role. You know, they should be in the domestic sphere. Then it's almost frightening that only a year or two later she starts meeting the first of the six presidents of the United States she talks with directly. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And that was when uh, James A. Garfield, a future president of the United States, came to Utah. And her husband invited her to come on the expedition out to Saldera. They like to take Visitors. visiting dignitaries mm-hmm. to the wonderful resorts at the edge of the Great Salt Lake. And Garfield had a steamship named after him. But she sat in the same private car with Garfield, and he invited her to sit next to him and converse back and forth. And he must have found her interesting and charming. I love hearing you quote these bits and pieces from her diaries and would love to have you describe more about her character, more about who she was and who she became as a person and how you can get those nuggets and and see that in her writing. You know, diaries are peculiar. They happen day by day. It's not like looking back and writing a memoir with a beginning, middle, and end. Instead, you're in the middle of all these events. And because she was a woman, she was multitasking. So she writes in her entries about things that happened at home, things that happened in the office, bits she read in the newspaper, public events, and worries that she had. She said in public, I don't let people see my feelings. But then she would go home and pour it out Mm -hmm. to her diary. So you have this wonderful mixture, and it means the reader has to be patient. Going along with the story, if you're interested in how she went to Washington, D.C., then you have to follow it through several days. But also you have the reward of freshness and the sense that we're hearing what she's It's happening right now. Well, and she wasn't writing it for other people necessarily, you know, so that's, I like how you said you have to be patient with it and you're kind of experiencing her life with her as she lives it. Because these diaries are online, they're searchable. And it means if you have a theme, even a word you're interested in, you can look it up and follow. You can find people you know in the diaries or your own relatives by using the search key. 
And if, if you take the diaries in tandem with the woman's exponent, oftentimes she's giving a more complete account of an event in the woman's exponent. But then sometimes it's a little bit more candid, although brief, in her diaries. And so that's kind of a fun contrast where she talks about her impressions of these suffrage leaders. In the woman's exponent, she talked about 1879 was the first time when she met Stanton and Anthony in person, or at least unless she might have met them in 71 when they came to Utah. We don't have a record of that, but she mentioned in The Woman's Exponent, Miss Anthony is in every respect Stanton's opposite, except that they agree on the woman question. She is entirely different from what one would fancy in reading about her. Upon the platform, she wore a very rich black silk dress trimmed with velvet and lace. In many respects, she is a very remarkable woman. She possesses great firmness and strength of character and is a famous talker. Her voice is not as pleasant as Mrs. Stanton's, but her words are sharp and incisive. And so, you know, just to have a firsthand account of what these women were like, there's a, another one when she makes a remark about Susan B. Anthony after she appears at a meeting at the Columbian Exposition, and she talks about her coming into the room with her usual cheery demeanor. You know, when we think about Susan B. Anthony, we don't necessarily think of her as a cheery, cheery. person. And I'm sure a large part of that is because of the kind of photographs that were taken at the time. Sure. But, you know, she seems like a much more serious kind of a person. So it's just kind of fun to get a little bit of backstory on and insight on those women. And they were friends with her. You know, I don't know if we really talked about that, that even though these were people who practiced polygamy, which was not acceptable— they were women who had the vote, and the so Utah, Utah, Utah and women. Utah. And so Susan B. Anthony was more inclusive. You know, mm -hmm. if you are working for the vote for women, you are one you of us. You can work with me. You can, yeah. yeah. And so she was accepting. We can set aside these yeah, we will, glaring differences exactly. that we have. <laughs> well, try not to emphasize the fact that you're a polygamist, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we want you to be part of our group. And especially since they had received the vote, had been enfranchised early on, and then as part of anti-polygamy legislation, lost mm -hmm. the vote and had to get it again. But still, she was able to form a relationship with those women, especially Susan B. Anthony, to the point where there were visible demonstrations of affection at meetings. There was a, a time after Emmeline gave a report that Susan B. Anthony came up to the podium with her and put her arm around her and just really gave a wonderful comment about Emmeline and about Utah women and people were moved to tears because it was just so touching and Susan B. Anthony bequeathed a gold ring to Emmeline when mm -hmm. she died, you know, as a tribute. Yeah. yeah. And we might want to mention, though, that she did have one really big disappointment when she didn't have funds. And that was the 1896 convention after Utah had become a state and she had been so instrumental in making sure that suffrage was involved, you know, included in the Constitution. She'd been advised by Susan B. Anthony, don't let that Constitution go without having woman suffrage in there because otherwise you might not get it back. And so she and others lobbied the legislators and got their promise that they would include the suffrage, had a little bit of a debate when it actually came right down to it, but in the end, suffrage was included. And so here was this celebration, and she telegraphed Susan B. Anthony to say, hooray, we've we done it, it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, rejoice with us, she said. And so then the suffrage convention was 
going to be just in a few weeks after that. And Emmeline didn't have the money to go. And here they were going to celebrate Utah and Emmeline. Utah and her work. Mm -hmm. And she didn't go. And it's just so shocking to me that someone didn't recognize. (laughs) No family, friends, the Relief Society, the Suffrage Association. Nobody. And she didn't get to go. And that was a big disappointment to her. She wrote, I can scarcely believe I am not going to Washington. Oh. It don't seem true at all. Oh. <laughs> I have really loved learning more about Emmeline. She's such an incredible person in our very own history. And I have really appreciated being inspired by her accomplishments and, and who she was. And so just to conclude, we would love to know from your perspective and from your involvement, what do you feel like Emmeline's significance is for Latter-day Saint women today? She had a wonderful sense of faith, along with her practicality. She relied on blessings from the priesthood in times of illness. She treasured her own patriarchal blessing and the blessings she had received from early church leaders. She went to the current leaders for, for help also. But she knew in her heart that she was a daughter of God and that she had important work that she could do. Think of her serving in the General Relief Society as a general secretary for 22 years, never typed. She wrote all her letters by pen and pencil. And often she was doing it late at night after she got home from work, keeping up the record of Relief Society. She never had a car or a buggy. She walked around town. She took streetcars. She was she lived so long, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. She was a petite woman, never more than five feet tall, and probably weighed 100 pounds or less. And yet she had that energy to just keep going night and day. I admire her very much for being a woman of action as well as a woman of sensitivity and culture. Well, I love that one of the themes of this discussion has been that from one of her blessings that she knew she was a child of destiny. You know, we're women of destiny. And I think that's such a beautiful tribute to her life that, you know, not only was she able to accomplish so many things, but this influence that she had to those around her and that extends to us is incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Cherry and Cherie, for taking the time with us to share the life of Emmeline B. Wells and your involvement with such a meaningful project. We want to remind our listeners that they can go to churchhistorianspress.org and see actual diaries from Emmeline B. Wells and then look at some of the supplementary material to learn a little bit more about Mm -hmm. her life. I know. And we could only, I feel like we could only share bits and pieces and nuggets, but yes, we hope our listeners who would like to learn more will check that resource out. We will link to them in the resources on the podcast episode. So learn more about Emmeline, be inspired by her words. Such an amazing resource. Thank you both for, for the time and commitment you've made to making her life and her words accessible and available. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. And we would love to hear from you. If you have feedback or ideas, um, you can contact me and Shaylin at podcasts at churchofjesuschrist.org. We would also appreciate so much whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. If you could leave us a rating or a review, that helps other listeners to find the podcast and to hopefully subscribe and, and listen to more episodes. So thank you so much for listening. I'm Carly Guyman. 
And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful day.